0: daily, now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, June the 6th, 2023. June, of course, is Pride Month, and we've already celebrated Pride uh, over the weekend. Uh, great conversation with uh, a gay activist, uh, writer, Journalist Paul Burston has a new book out. Uh, it's based in the UK, We Can Be Heroes, a survivor story for him. Survival isn't just of AIDS, but of the broader context of being a, a gay young man and being persecuted and bullied and growing up and emancipating himself. Um, Burston's autobiography, We Can Be Heroes, is really a book for grown ups, but it's about being a child, I guess. And there's, of course, a burgeoning um, pride literature, if that's the right way of putting it. And this month, uh, Epic Reads is celebrating that with a number of writers, including Jason June. Some of you be familiar with Jason. Others uh, with Sonora Ray, another best-selling writer. And with my guest today, um, Abdi Nazamian, who uh, is a best-selling writer, television guy, movie guy, and all-around uh, superstar. And he's joining us from Los Angeles on my time zone. Uh, happy Pride Day or Happy Pride Month, Abdi. Happy Pride
1: Month or season or...
0: Yeah, whatever it is. Yes. So, you know, I don't want to pigeonhole anyone. Uh, what? How do you think of yourself in the context of your gay identity, of pride? Do you like to think of yourself as a a creative gay, or is that rather simplistic and perhaps even insulting?
1: No, I don't find it insulting at all. I mean, I can understand why some people wouldn't want to be pigeonholed for me personally. I spent so much of my childhood searching for stories that reflected my life and who I wanted to be and I couldn't find them and I've kind of made a pact with myself that every one of my books will be in not only incredibly queer but Iranian and queer because when I started writing there were no stories about the Iranian LGBTQ community so for me I really lean into it and I'm very proud of of putting these stories out into the world
0: uh in your bio on the front page of your website you 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 you, you say that as a child stories meant everything to me uh, I found myself through books, comic books, films, and television. Were stories, Abdi, in a sense, an escape? Why Why did stories mean everything to you as a child?
1: Well, they were absolutely an escape. I mean, I moved to the United States when I was 10. Um, I write about this emotional experience in my novel, Like a Love Story. I moved to New York. I was an immigrant kid who didn't fit into the culture. And I moved at the height of the... Yep, yeah, there it is. I moved at the height of the... HIV and AIDS epidemic. So, you know, I was realizing I was gay at a time when not only was it completely invisible in my culture, but in the wider landscape of America it was synonymous with shame and stigma and you know, so stories were very much an escape and they gave me a fantasy. I was obsessed with old Hollywood. I was a, I w- you know, fantasy I think can be very useful for young people, but um but beyond that it 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 gave me hope, you know, it gave me hope that someday I could live that out. And I've chased that a lot of my life, to be honest. That's why I moved to Hollywood to start a career in film and television and why I've devoted myself to storytelling. And what I think I'm trying to do with my books is offer people versions of stories that more clearly reflect their lives. So as opposed to only using stories to escape, you're also using them almost to to see what the possibilities are of what life can be for you and also to learn about your own history. You're, I felt as a young person very much like my histories were invisible, both Iranian and queer.
0: In the Burston, and, um, and in my conversation with Paul Burston, he told me about growing up uh, in both Yorkshire and South Wales, South Wales, of course, being very different from Los Angeles and being bullied. Were you bullied as a child? Was your identity, sexual or otherwise, uh, clearly advertised to the world, or did you do your best to hide it? Uh,
1: both. I did my best to hide it and probably did a terrible job. And so I was bullied. (laughs) You know, I think back then there were very few opportunities to, you know, be embraced there. It was, there was so much shame, so much fear. Um, I felt that if I were out, it would, you know, break my parents' heart and bring shame to my family. That was very much the, the culture I was raised in. And so I tried to hide, but I was also, I was very me, you know, I was a kid who was obsessed with Joan Crawford and Judy Garland and Madonna by the age of 10 and who had a Madonna room. I think it was for people who knew the signs, not hard to see. Um, So, yeah, in boarding school. And I also my books are very personal. So I wrote a book called The Chandler Legacies about the culture of abuse at the boarding school I went to. Um, It's a fictionalized book, of course, but there was a tremendous amount of hazing and bullying and abuse at that school. And a lot of it was. You know, I I think in a lot of ways I was targeted because I was more effeminate, more, you know, different than than a lot of the, the other kids. And so that was very hard. And at the same time, I think it's also in a strange way a gift because I met so many of my best friends through that. And my mentors, the first person I came out to was an English teacher at that school 10 years before I would come out to my parents. And so I think in some ways when you're different you also attract mentors and friends who see that and and support you so
0: you know double-edged
1: experiences in my life
0: 1979 of course was a key year in the 20th century i think in some ways much more important than 1989 or 1918 or 1939 done lots of shows on it were your parents were they classic Uh, Iranian emigres from the the 79 revolution? When did they come to the U.S.?
1: Yeah, so we yes, I mean, I suppose classic uh, Iranian emigres. We actually went to France in 1978. So we left a little bit before the revolution. Um, And to hear my parents tell it, I think there was always a piece of them that thought maybe we would go back to Iran. But we never did. We just left everything behind. And then from there kind of hopped around. So after five years in France, we went to Canada, I think largely many Iranians ended up going to Canada because it was the easiest country to get citizenship from and you needed citizenship once you leave a country like Iran. So, you know, we became Canadian citizens, which I remain to this day. And then when I was 10, came to the United States and have stayed here, my parents on the East Coast and me on the West Coast since then. But yeah, I would agree with you about 79, big year in in global change.
0: And, and how did your parents tell the story of your exile Uh, were they associated with the 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 Shah's regime how how did they make sense of the revolution and of Khomeini and what happened in Iran
1: you know yes my parents were associated especially my mother's father was was involved in the Shah's government but you know they didn't tell the story that I think that's the important point I want to make and why I'm so committed to storytelling I think my parents like many immigrant families think that shielding their kids from trauma is the right thing to do. And I think, you know, many immigrants, I think, have the best of intentions with that because they don't want to bring all of that pain with them to this new country. Right. But I think for me growing up, I always felt like I could sense that there was a history of pain and trauma behind me and I never knew why or what the details were. And as an adult, I started to piece it all together and ask my parents and my aunts and uncles, all the hard questions And I think that's part of why I'm so committed to telling these stories is I think young people, as hard as their histories might be, it's always better to know than not to know. The not knowing leaves you in this anxious state of wondering. Um, But, you know, it's it was very hard, I think, for them. They loved the Iran that they knew um, and. I think for me there's a lot you know for my generation it's really tricky because we also have done our research and we know that the shah certainly wasn't perfect and though our parents may look upon that time fondly you know we also know that that there were you know valid reasons why people were unhappy with the shah as well you know the unfortunate thing and i really dig into this in in only this beautiful moment i think the unfortunate thing is so many of the people who dreamed of a better iran got a much worse iran yeah so so, I mean, this is a book I'm very proud of. And, you know, my father actually read it already. He was the first person. Yeah, this family. is
0: your, your latest book, uh, yeah. Only This Beautiful Moment. I wonder in a, in an odd way, um, Abdi, whether your parents' secrecy with their own Iranian story and your own personal secrecies tied you together. Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. I think that there is, you know, secrets are a big it's a big theme in my work and in my life. And I think oftentimes we keep secrets to protect people. That's what I'm interested in. You know, the people in my stories and in my life didn't keep secrets to hurt others. They kept secrets to help others. I think my parents shielded me from their trauma to protect me from it. And I think I stayed in the closet and didn't tell my parents who I was for a long time to protect them. And so in a weird way, we were doing it out of love, not knowing that actually breaking down those walls of secrecy is what would ultimately lead us to Um, much happier lives, much better relationships with each other. Um, And I think that's a really fascinating point you just made. I haven't thought about it in that way.
0: And then, of course, uh, in June 2023, when we're celebrating Pride, what I know this is a rather general question and probably would be depends who you're asking uh, it depends who you're applying this to. But what advice would you give kids who, like yourself, are still struggling to, so to speak, come out of the closet to reveal who they are, particularly in their sexual identity. If they have parents who are not willing to accept it, who are hostile, um, who are simply just hard to communicate with.
1: Right. It's it's tricky. You know, I I think the number one thing is there's finally a conversation happening around it's important for young people to stay safe. I think for a long time, the the queer community would would talk about coming out at all costs, like we had to come out. And I think now there's a more nuanced conversation around, you know, first make sure you're safe, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally. I think the importance of chosen family is really you know, something that we need to keep talking about to young people because the truth is for me, like I said, I came out to an English teacher 10 years before I came out to my parents. And in those 10 years, slowly came out to different people so you know, people often ask, especially in Western culture, like, "When did you come out, or what was your gay awakening?" And, and for me, it's not one event; it took place over over a decade. And and sometimes with my culture and my family, I had to come out again and again because there's a lot of denial and compartmentalization. And so you have to you have to redo it and redo it. And I think for young people, building those support systems, having that chosen family, that community that you trust, that you know is there for you as you navigate your family structure or your, you know, culture, that that's so important.
0: Abdi, we've done many shows over the last year or two about book banning one kind or another, did one with Alice Osman, very popular English writer, um, young people's writer. She's the author of Solitaire. I assume, I'm guessing, that you're particularly concerned with... um, the, the the revamping and the reignition of the culture wars by DeSantis and Trump. What what do you make of what's happening in America broadly, both in, in terms of these culture wars and also book banning, which is obviously in in many ways a personal affront to you as as an author of, of yeah. books about this
1: stuff? Well I've been like like a love story, my novel that is about, you know, it's largely about three teenagers who get involved in AIDS activism. It's an ode to act up. Um, Oh my God, all my divas. Uh, uh, Yeah, that's
0: your Twitter page. That's my Twitter
1: page. Those are some of my favorite people with my novel thrown in. Um, That book has been banned very widely across the United States. So I am... Quite a compliment. I wish my books were banned. (laughs) You know, people say... It's interesting because a lot of people will say... When I tell them the book has been banned and, and it's it's been banned, you know, in quite a few places, they'll say, you know, congratulations or that's a badge of honor. And I suppose in some ways I understand that. But the truth is, I didn't until I started getting very personal attacks on social media from people who are either trying to ban my book or responding to the bans. I didn't realize quite how painful it is. And I've spoken to authors who are, you know, the number one most banned people in the country. And they say the same thing. It's a deeply painful experience. You know, it's not, it doesn't feel great to go online and have people calling you a pedophile and a groomer and a pornographer, especially when you're, you know, I'm a dad, I have two kids. I feel like I've devoted so much of my life to making the world better for young people who are going through the kind of pain I went through. When I was young, I feel like my whole mission is to try and help these young people. I go speak at schools quite a bit. I interact with these teens. I see how starved they are for representation and for interaction with grownups who are going to be positive mentors for them. I think that's a very natural thing. I wish every parent who had a queer teen, as opposed to banning queer stories, was seeking out queer mentors for them. I think it's so important for young people to have those mentors to see examples of happy, fulfilled LGBT people as opposed to seeing that there's shame around it. So, you know, to be honest, I think for me on a personal level, the book banning is just a heartbreak and it's painful. And I certainly went through a period of being very angry about it um, and being reactionary. But I think ultimately, where I've come out on with all the book banning is I can't let the Desantises of the world and the book banners of the world rob me of my values, which are very much about empathy and oneness. And I've worked so hard with my own culture, with Iranian culture, which is, you know, has been very homophobic. I've worked with them. I've shown up to dinner tables and events to talk to people and educate. And I very much believe in bringing people together and not dividing people. So I have to I have to work very hard to let go of the anger and and come from a place of empathy and forgiveness, as hard as that is.
0: Lots of people, uh, Abdi, are uh, comparing what's happening in America to the book burning and banning in the 1930s. Yeah. How would you make sense of it in historical terms? How unique is this current wave of culture wars in America? It's happened before and it will... Probably happen again. Is it business as normal amongst conservative Republicans, or is there something new here?
1: Um, you know, I think as always with history, there's repetition of patterns with slightly different, you know, uh shades. So I think it is somewhat business unusual in that I think whether and it's not just the United States and conservative Republicans,
0: right? Of course. We oh. we've done shows on Turkey, on right. uh, on Hungary, we did a show on. LGBTQ uh, literature in Hungary. So it's happening everywhere. I'm not singling the yeah. US out. That's right. And you have to
1: understand, I come. You know, I was born in Iran and have family in Iran in a country where you can't. You know, there's literally no freedom of speech. So it's. I'm well aware that there's global issues, but I do think, to your point about history, there is a pattern of, you know, repressive forces, fascist forces. The first thing they try to do is scapegoat a community to distract people from their mission. And when their power is slipping, they, you know, start pointing fingers. And oftentimes they use the same exact tactics. I actually was in London. I think you might be, I don't know where you're from, but.
0: Maybe, yeah, English originally,
1: Right. So I was in London recently. I spent a whole day because I love queer history and the queer archives at the Bishopsgate Institute, just reading um, the gay, it was, I think it was called Gay News, which was their gay magazine from that was being published in the 1970s, which is a period I'm obsessed with. And it was so fascinating because so many of the issues happening in the UK in the late seventies were the same thing happening now. It was fear of gay teachers, you know, LGBT people interacting with young people, you know, it's doctor medical issues, you know, around gay access to doctors, which is what's happening now with the trans community and with medical care. You know, they're always going to the same exact points time and time again, you know, Anita Bryant at the time of Anita Bryant, there was the, the Briggs Initiative here in the U.S. in California around gay teachers. Now, once again, you're seeing education be on the forefront. They're always going to find the thing that scares people the most, which is usually your children, right? And they're going to try and find a way to demonize a certain community. And so, you know, I think I, th- I think I say this in the author's note to like a love story, but one of my big big aha moments in my adult life is that when I was taught history, I was always taught this idea that like, you should teach history. So, so as not to repeat it. And when I was researching like a love story and act up, which is this incredibly inspiring organization that changed, um, the way that people with AIDS, yeah,
0: I think uh, Burston was one of the founders in the UK. I know it. it began oh, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. But so when I was researching that, I had this big aha moment, which was that why don't we teach history so as to repeat the best of it as opposed to so as to avoid the worst of it? And so a lot of what I'm interested in when I talk to young people is who do we want to emulate? Who are the act ups? Who are the heroes? How did people you know? You're right. There's a history from, you know, Germany in the 30s from before then, from after then of fascist forces, of repressive forces. But who succeeded at combating them in the right way who do we learn from because i think that's what we're missing otherwise we just kind of spin in our anger and we we lose our values and we lose the opportunity to hopefully make a better world for our kids which is what i think we all want
0: Abdi, one of the issues that's very very controversial bringing out enormous passions on all sides is the trans issue it's created in some ways, I guess, an intellectual civil war within the gay community, conservative uh, gay thinkers like Andrew Sullivan, uh, others are very critical of him. I talked a little bit about this to burst. And how do you make sense of not just the trans issue, but the debate uh, and the kind of anger and in some ways, I think um, intolerance that it seems to be bringing out on all sides? Um.
1: I I don't know anything about Andrew Sullivan, so I can't speak to that. I know quite a bit about the issue. I find it heartbreaking that certain members of our own community um, have, you know, not stood by trans people as this is happening. Um, that feels very heartbreaking to me. The one thing that I think we need a lot more of, honestly, is intergenerational discourse within the queer community because I think in my experience, quite a few older gay people they don't understand the issues that are facing young people and and trans people because they don't interact with kids you know i have two 11 year olds i speak at high schools all the time i know how not a big deal it is to have trans kids and how horrible the experience is for them i would never want to divide them out of our community so you know, for me, I think a lot of the the discourse is based out of fear. It's based out of people not knowing the issues and not knowing people who are trans. And it's just heartbreaking. And I wish there was more empathy in the world and more curiosity. I don't know why people wouldn't just lean into curiosity and making a better world. And I also think, honestly, there's a lot of misinformation out there around the issues with trans kids. You Often when you hear people talk about the debate from the, you know, the side that I am not on, the the anti-trans side, they're saying things that just aren't true about what's happening to young people or what's happening in school or trans sports. Which, you know, there's a great podcast called Science Versus. I don't know if anyone, any of your listeners, listened to it, but they did an amazing episode about trans sports that basically debunked everything that everyone says about it. And it just like where's the wh- why aren't we leading into both the science and the empathy i mean all the scientists seem to agree that this is not you know the the the, the science is very clear that we should be supporting gender affirming care that we should be supporting trans kids that that this is something this is this is a positive thing and i think as a community we need to we need to support the members of our community that are being targeted the most so i get i get very upset when I hear LGBT, you know, I know, I, I expect it from Republican politicians. When I hear it from LGBTQ people, it's, it's quite heartbreaking. Were
0: you disappointed by JK Rowling or have you been disappointed? Extremely,
1: extremely. Yeah. Extremely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's upsetting because I read those books quite religiously. Me and a cousin of mine would get the Harry Potter books the day they came out and we would sit together and we would turn the pages together. It was like a, you know, it was such a huge part of our, our life. Um, and it's hard, but you know, then again, when you're my, I mean, I'm 46 now, so many of the artists that I revered and loved have turned out to do horrible things and be awful people. So it's not the first time I've gone through that, but yeah, of course I was disappointed.
0: I'm disappointed.
1: Well, I think ultimately with, with JK Rowling, it's a, it's a bit of a more extreme example than many artists because she's actively using, it's not like, Oh, she did one horrible thing and it's, heartbreaking to learn someone you loved isn't a great person. It's more that she is actively using her platform, the platform of her social media, of her power with the press to create division and to scapegoat a community using a lot of stereotypes and fear tactics. And, you know, I know I, you know, again, the UK is a place I love and spend a lot of time in, but from, I have a friend who's a parent in the UK who said there's a a family at their school who's considering leaving the UK entirely because it's gotten so bad because they have a trans kid and they can't exist there peacefully. And that that's heartbreaking. And why would you do that? Why would you, you know, you're talking about a vulnerable community. Why would you use your incredible power to make life harder for a family already dealing with something so difficult? That's just
0: beyond me. Abdi, I presented you as the author of only this Beautiful Moment, that's your latest book. You've written lots of other books. We talked about The Chanda, Legacies, Like a Love Story. Uh, the Walking Closet won a major award. But you're quite a prolific guy. I don't quite know how you do it. I mean, you're also very active uh, in television and in movies. How do you do it all? And, and how does your work in TV and film connect or perhaps disconnect with your work as a, as a, as a writer of books for young people? Um, well, I mean, you know, I
1: started out in film and TV. That was always my initial dream because I grew up, like I said, when I was young, old Hollywood was my, you know, obsession and I had dreams of, you know, a proximity to Celebrity and stardom. I mean, you see some of the people I was obsessed with there, and I still love all of that. I still, you know, 20 years into a career in Hollywood, I'm still a little kid. I still get starstruck.
0: You're still, there. You're still living in Laurel Heights in in the heart of Los Angeles.
1: In the heart oh, of- yeah. And I still, you know, people get very jaded and bitter in this industry, but I'm not like that at all. I love it. I love glamour. I love celebrity. I love Hollywood, but I you know, 10 years into my career as a screenwriter, I did start to get very frustrated because I felt that the stories I was telling that were most personal were the ones that would never get made. They would often be the scripts that got me hired to write something that wasn't very personal. And it was probably around the time I had kids, you know, as I think I mentioned, I have kids who are 11, they're twins. But around the time they were born, I started to feel that I didn't want my legacy as a writer for them when they grew up to be a bunch of movies or TV things that didn't reflect my values and my personal story, I wanted to leave something behind that they could turn, they could turn to and, and get to know me and, and their own culture and their own history. And that's when I realized that books were going to be a much better avenue for me because it's, you know, truthfully, even now with all the changes in Hollywood, it's incredibly hard to get queer stories made. And then when you talk Iranian stories, it's virtually impossible within the Hollywood structure because there are no Iranian stars and you need stars to get money and you need a lot of money to make a movie or a TV show. So it's, uh, I think in many ways the, the Hollywood world led me into books, but I haven't abandoned film and TV. I love what it. What was your
0: association with Kumi by your name? I know on your Twitter page, you note it. Were you uh, one of the, the writers? You no, know, <laughs> uh, no,
1: no, no, no. I was an associate producer, which is, uh, which is one in a, one of many producer titles. Uh, at the time I was working at a production company called Waters and productions. I worked there for six years as their head of development, which means I was a, uh, I was charged with finding projects, developing projects, working with writers, and we were an independent film company. And that was really a dream job because after a whole career of being a writer, as a writer, you're always waiting for someone else to say yes to you and to give you an opportunity. But to be at this company where I got to be that person who got to call filmmakers and say, we're going to invest in your movie or we're going to help your movie get made was a real uh, (laughs) real thrill. But with Call Call Me By Your Name was a project we were involved in and as a result-
0: Were you happy with the way it came out?
1: uh, Absolutely. I mean, it's a miracle film. It was, when I first saw, I saw the the final final cut along with the audience at the Sundance Film Festival when it premiered and, you know, I had tears in my eyes because I couldn't believe the, both just my emotional experience watching it, but also the audience's response. And then I, I I have a visceral memory of, you know, that final shot of Timothy Chalamet crying at the fireplace. And then my name comes up and I'm like, what am I, what is my name doing on this
0: beautiful. Right. It's, uh, I mean,
1: I think the filmmaker, Luca Guadagnino, I, I was obsessed with him pre-Call Me By Your Name based on a movie called I Am Love that everyone should see.
0: Yeah. A Bigger Splash is also amazing. Actually, big, uh, I think I prefer a Bigger Splash to Call Me By Your Name. Do you? I prefer I Am Love. I Am Love is... I, ha- I have to admit, I haven't seen that one, but that's I have to favorite. go and see well, it. So uh, let's, end, um, let's end... Let's uh, end the with a return to Iran. We've, we've done some shows on... Uh, creative innovation in in the middle east one with the uh, actually an la-based historian mark Levine. He as a new book out will play till we die about rebellious movement in the muslim world what uh, we have an international audience for keen on what advice would you give to kids in iran watching this who are really i mean it's it's one thing to so to speak come out in the united states it's quite another in iran what would you say to them and some of them may have access to your work, certainly to your website, um, and to this interview. What, what 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 could or should you do in a place like Iran? and what hope do you have of Iran eventually changing itself, becoming a more tolerant place? Gosh.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, in terms of people within Iran, I so much of why I wrote this book in only this beautiful moment, much of it takes place in present day Iran and shows, queer life and queer people and what's happening. I know that, you know, I know that my work has reached Iran because I have, you know, friends and cousins who live there and I know that and I get messages from within Iran. But I also know that people there don't have the luxury of being as public as I am and of of fighting. So, I mean, one message I would say is like, I want people within Iran to stay safe. You know, there's no future for Iran if every young person is, is in prison or killed by the government. So, you know, people need to fight back, but fight back smart. I'm so inspired by the people out in the streets in Iran. But I also, you know, those of us out here, who are Iranian, I think we are trying as hard as we can to honor the voices within Iran. I I tell a story like this in part for them and, you know, to, to help share their story. And so I don't know, I mean, if, if anyone's listening, you can reach out to me, you can tell me what you want us to say. So, So many of us in the when the protests began in Iran, you know, after the death of Masoginana Amini. So many of us were getting messages from within Iran asking us to do certain things. you know, this is what we want you to say because we can't say it, you know we and so that's like we're here to support. And that just goes, I just go back to that idea of listening the same way when you asked about the trans community. It's I don't live in Iran. I can't say what it's like to live in Iran. I have the privilege of living here in lovely Los Angeles, you know, Uh, where I have the safety of of being a public protest and saying what I want and being an outspoken author. So I want to listen. I want if you are out there, tell me what you need, you know.